It was in 1517 that William Tyndale uh, he learned about the doctrine of justification, and that led him to that led to his salvation. Approximately 1517, and he read this through the Greek translation that Erasmus had written of the New Testament. And about a hundred years ago. Constantinople had fallen to the Arabs, and the Greek scholars had taken these scholarship and parchments across to the West. And in the West, there was nothing at that point. And so, in fact, this movement really helped the West. And along with that came this Greek translation. It was also the printing press that uh, that was invented at that time, uh, about a hundred years before William Tyndale, and so he only thought it right that the scripture be translated into English. But there was a law called the Constitutions of Oxford. The Constitutions of Oxford forbade any reading. Listen to that. Any reading. Or any translation into people's language, which is English, that they would be even put to death. That only the ecclesiastical order, only the church clergy, could do that. And so he persisted. And there was one clergyman who said, "What are you trying to do? We're better off without God's laws than the popes. That they prefer to have." The Pope's encyclicals, or the, you know, whatever he says, compared to God's word, and this is what William Tyndale said. He said, "I defy the Pope and all his laws, and if God spares my life or many years, I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of the Scripture than thou dost." That's a old English. And so then, what he did, uh, he smuggled himself to Antwerp in uh, Belgium, and there he began to translate the New Testament and then the Old Testament into English. But he was betrayed, and into the hands of the law he was given. He was jailed and then later strangled and burnt at stake. And so the Bible that you hold in your hand has the blood of the martyrs. And this has come to us at great cost. And so yesterday we were talking about the Word of God, the sound doctrine. We understand that there is no hope without God, and we only get to know about God through His Word. And so this morning, as we look into God's Word, as we read God's Word, I want us to understand that. It is God Himself who has given us this, these words in English translation and all of that. But it's God's word. So I'm going to ask you in a moment to stand up as we read God's word. But we are about to go into chapter two, and chapter two is the chapter of discipleship. If you remember, the first session was on Godship. Second was on. Leadership, and now we're going to look at discipleship. You see, we know who God is. We know the Word is taught, 
And now how does that get disseminated? How does everybody in the church make that a practical thing? Because it's good to have and understand the truth, but it must be lived out. And that is what we want to see because discipleship is both caught and, sorry, taught and caught. That is, it's taught, but we have to see it lived out. And that is how it is caught. So taught and caught. Uh, in fact, Walter Henriksen, he wrote a book. The book was called, The Disciples Are Made, Not Born. Right? And we think sometimes that disciples, oh, you made a disciple, I confess uh, my sins, to the, uh, confess my sins, I told God he's my Lord and my Savior, and that's it. But, uh, you know, there's a process too, there's a growth that is involved. And so what we're looking at really is adorning the gospel, that's the title. But I'm going to ask you to please stand up as we read God's word. I'll be in Titus chapter 2, verses one to 10. So follow with me, read with me if you want, or if you want to read silently, that's okay. But read it as God is speaking to you. I don't know if you knew this, but all across the Bible, from the beginning to the end, you will see the public reading of God's word. Paul tells Timothy, do not forget the reading, the public reading of God's word. Moses in Deuteronomy, he reads the scripture to the nation of Israel. Joshua, when they moved to Jordan, the first thing they do is public reading of the scripture. Ezra, after they come back in exile, they do the public reading of the scripture. The Lord Jesus Christ, he launches his ministry with the public reading of the scripture. You get to Revelation, this is blessed are those who read aloud this word. And so we want to read aloud God's word. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. I'm going to read from the ESV. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Verse 9, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything you may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Father, we want to thank you for the hearing of your word. Thank you, God, that this word that you gave, which is written down, is the same word that speaks to us. And so, 
as we were learning yesterday to you, Lord, this. Help us, Lord, to understand this in its context. Help us, Lord, to understand the eternal principles that you have for us. Help us, Lord, Father, we pray that we would not just be hearers, but also doers. Because in doing your word, we find the joy of being transformed into the likeness of your Son. Thank you for answering our prayers. In Jesus Christ, the Lord's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I'll need help. Say it again. Oh, okay. I'll point it here. Okay. Thank you. Sorry about that. Uh, The one thing about uh, what we believe, we've been talking about this, what we believe must, must be made visible in behavior. What you believe must be made visible in your behavior. We saw the first one. You see, we might confess something, but what we have, this functional belief, is what gets evidenced. And so we want to, therefore, close the gap between what we confess and what we actually believe. And so there's work to be done. And so we ask, how will this be possible? Paul, as he's writing to Titus, for the Christians in Crete, he's asking this question. There seems to be no distinction between the Cretans and the Christians there. How do you create this distinction? This, this, this distinction needs to be there. And so then he is about to write and say, this is going to happen through discipleship. True, teaching is required, but it's going to be put into practice through discipleship. And then what he gives here, if you've noticed, there is older men, older women, uh, there is younger men, younger women, there is bond slaves, there, there's also the, uh, the elder, the teacher, all right? The idea is that of the household, the household of God. Have you heard of this term coming frequently in the, word, in, 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 in the New Testament, especially in Paul's writing? He uses the word household. Um, he actually mentions this multiple times. And it's important for us to take just that brief moment to, to see what it means when he uses the word household. It's a Roman cultural concept. Because there, in a household, you had the man, the wife, you had the children, but you had the slaves, the workers, the, the, free, uh, the free servants. It was a complete... Household. So then there is interactions between them. There is relationship between them. No bond servant would come and say, I've got no work. I'll come, sit at the back, and then go. Right? There is work to be involved. And so there is participation within the household. There is a hierarchy of responsibility. We, I know you guys call it also this distinction between who is part of the CBF and GBF, the members, and those who are visiting, and we want, want them to become part of us, yes. But it's those who are part of us who take responsibility. They will go and, you know, it's, it's like when you, when you have guests at home, they don't wash the dishes, Right? If they offer to take the plate and go in the kitchen, you would say, no, 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 leave it there, leave it there, leave it there. We've got, we got somebody to help. And then you go in and clean it. Or you tell your husband. But, but the guests don't participate in the activity of the household. 
And so what Paul is so masterfully doing is bringing this idea of household. He speaks about it in Colossians. He speaks about it in Ephesians six times. There are these instructions on different parts. He, he brings this idea of household. So the moment they hear the word household, they understand that there is participation. There is part that is expected. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, we'll see how he calls it, that I'm writing this to you so that you may know how to behave in the household of God. Right? There's a, a, there's a participation that is happening here. And so when you also think about the household, then discipleship is not just sitting here listening as you sit in the, uh, in the pews and then going away. It's a household, which means you don't really get away from your household. You leave from here and you stay part of the household. It's a week on, a day, day in and day out interaction. There's participation that is not just a Sunday morning, uh, an hour and a half or two hours or whatever time you meet, but it's, it just seeps into your life. That is the idea of the church. God is not trapped in this. Did you know that? God is not trapped in this building and once, once every Sunday you come and you say hi to him or worship him or whatever. He's not trapped here. This is, you don't come to the church. You are the church. You know that. And so if you are the church, how can you, be, how can you not be the church during the week? That is where this idea of discipleship comes in. It's, it's a concept which is unique to uh, Christianity. And unfortunately, when salvation is, uh, is presented to us, we are only given the first part of justification. I know you confess your sin, you'll, he'll, you'll, your sins will be forgiven, and, and, and it just, that's it, you know. You, you become like that uh, Jack and the Beanstalk, you know, you sprouted up, and you're a Christian. That's not the idea. You, you, you don't just... Overnight, mature. Maturity takes time. There are growth lines. I mean, not all of you have kids. And I don't know how many of your homes don't have growth lines in, on the wall. The child goes up against the wall and says, uh, I, I drank a glass of milk. Did I grow tall? And then they go back the next day. Did I grow tall? And you have to keep drawing those lines. And so they're excited about this growth. And, and the question we have to ask ourselves is exactly that. So it's not an overnight miracle. It's an, it, it, salvation is, you, 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 you're born into the household of God, and then you live the life in the local setting of the household of God. And Paul, as he presents, he is calling us to a process of continuity, continuity, and the theme of mutuality. And what do I mean by that? That it's a continuous process of growth and that it involves all of us. Uh, I don't know if you, if, you know, the Roman culture, they had banquets. And on the banquet, all they have to do is just go lie down and there'll be people and feeding them with grapes. Right? We should never reduce our faith to a banquet of the Roman culture, but of a love feast where everybody is involved. And so this model that he writes here is, is really what 
we want to look at briefly. And I will confess that we as a church are struggling. This is not easy, especially in a in an individualistic society where people are not willing to break down barriers and work through. But we continue to speak on this and work on this because we believe and we know that this is the truth of God. This is the only way we can survive. And I pray to God that, that as you are working together to disciple and to have this culture of discipleship, that, that every... Every person who is part of these two churches are helped. And so let's... Um, Household is the chief theater of Paul's campaign. Somebody said that that's, he, he uses that picture, okay? Okay, sorry. So remember we looked at a point, apprehend and affirm... Now we want to look at apprentice. That's what discipleship really is. What the 12 who were with Jesus, uh, that they will be with him as he taught and as he, as he went about. Apprenticeship, therefore, is, is this, that I'm learning a life skill. Discipleship requires the learning of the Bible because that's the basis on which our discipleship happens. But discipleship also involves understanding how the truths are lived out. And that is done through a template of observation. So you're taught and then you're, then you're, then you're trying to do the caught. Okay, so apprenticeship, remember that. And... Um, and the, the, this is what the Lord Jesus Christ mentioned in the Great Commission, as we call it, that go make disciples, make disciples. That's the mandate. Not just have people confess their sins or whatever, uh, that they would, um, they would make disciples. So verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2, older men. Older men are to be. Okay, so... I call it the OM ministries, the older men ministries, right? That's, well, that's, so there's a ministry for them. And so what is the expectation? The expectation is that they are mature or sober-minded. They're dignified. They sound in faith and doctrine. They express love. That love is the word agape. Agape is the love for others, the selfless love. So they, they, they are, there's an expectation that they are that. And then there's perseverance. Perseverance is doing the right thing even when there's no evidence that's making a change. You keep doing it. Keep doing it. It's the long road of obedience. That's perseverance. That's an expectation of the older men. Because they are now creating this template for the younger men to look up and say, now I see the correlation. I see this was, this was taught. Now I see this is how it's lived. So then there's a problem if we don't live like that. Older men. And being older men, I think it starts at 18, right? So discipleship, um, Art Linkletter, I don't know if you, he, he was a comedian and you, you would know him. I think he did the show, The Kids Say the Darnest Thing. And he said there are four phases in life. One is infancy, then there's childhood, then there's adolescence, and there's obsolescence. 
you feel that once you become old, that you're not good. I want to pause and say just a few things here, because I know this is a demographic of younger crowd. And I want to speak just to take a few minutes for those who, who have lived life, who, are, who have seen children grow, have taken care of them, are now grandparents maybe, or maybe in a phase of life where the, the, the trauma of youth is not theirs. And for them, I, I plead and ask, don't think that you, your, your retirement is retirement from spiritual uh, template that you're causing or providing for the young people. There's no retirement. If you have, my son actually told me this. I wanted him to get something. He said, if you've got two feet and a heartbeat, why don't you get it yourself? He said it nicely. But the idea is that. Right? If, if you've got, you got breath in your lung... It's not time to retire. It's a time to be the model. It's the time to be a template. It's a time to provide to see son, daughter. This is how we actually live the gospel. Because uh, there is a Greek proverb that says, a society grows when men or older men plant trees in whose shade they will never sit. When you plant an oak tree, it will give its first shade maybe 10, 15 years later. I, I, I don't know if you knew this about the cathedrals in Europe. Some of the cathedrals would take centuries to build. The oldest or the one that took the longest is the one in Cologne. It took about 600 years to build. Which means the one who initially started building the cathedral was not, never got to see how the end looked. And, and so older men, you are actually building cathedrals in this society. In a culture that we want to change. I come from a culture where the culture is changing to become so secular that it's frightening. And yet we have the hope of the gospel. That this gospel will change Crete will be the gospel that will change us. We need to pray for Canada. We need to pray that this great awakenings that we heard about would be real in our time. That the Spirit of God will cause people to confess and to fall and to become disciples of Jesus Christ. That they will not wait for that time and that time when they have to confess with their mouth and fall on their knees. But it will be forced on, on them. But at this time, we, as we sing that song, we are blessed. And I pray that for Canada. I know the gospel can do it. I know my Lord can do it. So we are not hopeless. We, we don't stand on hopelessness and say, what am I going to do? We are not wringing our hands. God is not wringing his hands. He is saying, we've got something here, but you've got to do something about it. You've got to work. And older men built cathedrals. You're not retiring. Our grandparents are included. They are great bridge builders. You know, <clears throat> sometimes we think as grandparents, our responsibility is to just buy toys and chocolate and be a friendly face. But no, speak to them the truths of God's word, not in a way that 
that you enforce it, but you show it, and you, and you show your love for the truth of God's word. And it just overwhelms from you that you, you gently and, and in a loving way rebuke them as you draw them to this love of God. We don't want to lose a single child, a young people. No, we will not lose a young, even a young man or a young woman. But that responsibility lies as the church works together. And this is a call to older men. Then verse 3. Somehow the Bible doesn't believe, at least in this context, ladies first. The older women are there. Older women likewise have to be reverent. Uh, There is a ministry called the Titus 2 Women Ministry. They've recognized that this is a good discipleship model. And as he writes this, uh, just a little uh, to connect back to the Roman culture. See, in Crete, there was what was called the new Roman woman. They were a little more emancipated. They were like the early form of the women's lib. They would not be at home. They would not take care of their household or the family. They were out you know, I, I don't know, buying coach handbags. I don't know what they were doing, but, you know, having party or what, like they were outside of the house. They had, they didn't want to take any responsibility. And here comes the gospel, which is contraindicated, which is to say that, listen, there is a living that needs to be done. All the women, you've got to speak into the lives of these people. And so again, uh, he writes to older women on issues that we tend to soft pedal. You know, when there is cultural sensitivity involved, we don't know how to approach it. But Paul lays out the truth as it should be laid out. That they are to be reverent in behavior. We'll come to that. But just let me quote. um, It's a long quote, but I'm going to read to you, but I think it's worth it. We have bought into the notion that older people have had the day of usefulness. And not to make way for the young. But the principle here is quite the opposite. With age and experience come wisdom. And many older women have discovered secrets of godly living in relation to their husbands, children, and neighbors, and in their workplace that can save younger women a lot of unnecessary grief. And when the unavoidable trials come to the young women, who better to guide her through, through, uh, guide her through than an older sister who has been through it before? Listen to this. Somehow, the church must see the younger women have contact with older men. Oh, sorry, women, sorry. I was starting to see some of the notes that I had there, but I thought I could do it in autopilot, but there goes. The church has a responsibility to help the older men and the older women frame words, or if I can use the corporate term, they train the trainer. Church does the train the trainer for the older men and the older women on how they can disciple. Because they, some of them have no clue how to, 
how to share their experience. And probably that's where the church comes in, as, as the leaders would come in and explain and put it together. But there is this responsibility that is given to them. And Titus 2 is a beautiful example where women's ministry is highlighted. It gives legitimacy. It gives these limitations. Uh, they are the mothers of Israel, the mothers of the church, as it were. This beautiful idea that they can teach. Now, this teaching is not the teaching with the uppercase T, which is what the elders are responsible to set the teaching of the church. But they are the ones who, with the small T, they might teach in Sunday school. They might teach the younger women, disciple them. They may be teaching at home, but they are teaching nevertheless. And so they are called to teach. And there are seven responsibilities laid out here and what they need to do. And in verse 5, they need to be self-controlled. So there's this word and deed. They're not to be slanderers. That's the word there. The word slanderers there is the word which is used for the accuser of the brethren, which is what we read in Revelation 12 of the old serpent. So when you slander somebody, when you say ill of somebody, you're actually slandering, you're accusing the brethren and the cistern. I think you didn't get that. That was supposed to be the dad joke. I don't know who was giving the dad joke. Brethren and cisterns, but okay, that's, that's all right. But the idea here is also that habits of speech are a spiritual qualifier. If you read First Timothy chapter 3, where, where Paul is writing to Timothy about the qualifications of the leaders, he says how you use your mouth, how you speak, how you use your tongue is, is actually a disqualifier if you don't use it properly. And here again, we see that they're not to be slanderers. Uh, tongue is the hardest member to control. And... Um, uh, and, I, you know, I mean, why, why does Paul write specifically to the women about this? And I think that's a good question to ask, right? Because I think women, uh, women are more in touch with their emotions. Men are like the styrofoam cutouts. You know, they've got enough emotion as much as the cutout has, right? But women are in touch with their emotions and they're able to express it. They can use it in a good way or they can use it in a bad way. They can use it in a sharp way or they can use it in a soft way. And so Paul writes and says that, hey, this, this, this unique gift that you have where the emotion and your words can be put together. You ask any teenage boy, what did he do? Nothing. Well, he's not able to express. It's not his problem. You know what I'm talking about. Right? But that's what it is. Think about it. And so women are called to not to use how they speak in a good way. And it says, not slaves to much wine. And this is addiction to anything. We might take pride in the fact oh, when, when we were asked, how many of you had wine last week? No hand went up. Either they didn't want to confess or... or Oh, you don't really drink. That's okay. We take pride in the fact that we don't drink, but we, we forget there are other social, other biblical, biblically forbidden things that we do. We are almost addicted to. 
So we've got to be careful. These are ones who place themselves daily in God's hands, saying that like the song we sang, this, I lay me down so that God can use your life to shape the life of others. A life in chapter 2, verse 5, it says, a life that will cause, that will not give cause for the word of God to be blasphemed. That's a very powerful uh, uh, word, isn't it? Then in verse 6, for younger men, just one line, but very powerful. I'm going to read this to you in the amplified version. It says, younger men are to be self-restrained and to behave prudently, taking life seriously. A life on the inside that matches the outside. Whew, younger men. I think COVID was only a visible evidence of the mask that we've been wearing at church for many centuries. We have a life on the inside and we have a life on the outside. We have a life that we play regularly during the week and there's a life that we put on we come to church and so the urge is to make it one and say this life that I lay me down would be a life that God is pleased with it's not worth it's not worth like Moses would say to enjoy the pleasing pleasures of sin sin will give you pleasure it does, but it's only a passing pleasure. It's not worth it. And so having said that, he moves on to the teachers and the elders. He's writing to Titus, and that's the fifth one that we, are, we were looking at. Um, sorry, I didn't, I didn't put that. Okay. But this is the fifth one, the apply. How does the church leader now apply and help. He is like the overseer of the household of God, as it were. Uh, so, because this expression, as goes the elder, goes the church. So much responsibility on the, on the elder. Right? And so they have expectations. In verses 7 to 8, what is it? In all respects, to be a model of good works, a model of good works, that they model, that they template for life. So that as they see the life of the elder, they're able to again see that this is how the gospel correlates to life. We live, uh, the word there is two paws or the pattern, like a mold. They give this mold. We live in a time where uh, people know everything. They know more than the elders. We know more than the parents. So we, 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 we think, what am I going to learn from him? What am I going to learn from them? We are discipled by Google. Anything we need, we look up Google. Right? I mean, I, I guess 
or you might listen to other speakers in other churches or whatever it is right and sometimes we don't have the discernment to figure out if that teaching is good or not and it 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 starts to mess with our world view the problem then is when we come with this puffed up knowledge we become as we saw earlier insubordinate disobedient unwilling to listen and we have a problem but these are shepherds who've been placed over you to protect you hebrews 13:17 says they are to give account for your souls and so as as more people come and they recognize the increasing responsibility and so they and so as they um are careful to live that life of model we would also have on our part to be listening to them and seeing that being mere humans yet they are doing it faithfully I like this I wanted to turn to Acts chapter 1 verse 1 and I really like that I suddenly remembered that so would you let me read to you Acts chapter 1 verse 1 in the first book of Theophilus I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach began to do and to teach you see the sequence there so beautifully laid out began to do and to teach and that's a good thing for us to remember and having said that now he's going to the slaves in verse 9 and in verse 10 bond slaves are to be submissive to their own masters and everything now when you look at bond slave you would say i'm not a bond slave so why are you telling me this but you're an employee for sure in the company but first and foremost you're a bond slave of Jesus Christ That is how Paul starts in verse 1 chapter 1 verse 1 Paul a bond slave a doulos of God So it's a bond slave to God who's writing to us uh, writing to those in Crete but now as we read that we read this as something that's applicable to us that we are to adorn the doctrine of God as savior in the way we work and the way we deal with the masters that it would be that our work our labor will be an ornament of praise to the gospel when they see your work they're able to see there's something about you know you know what they talk about this christians whatever they talk about i think i can see this in in him in her that's the adorning of the gospel we are not adding to the gospel we are not uh, glamorizing the gospel but we 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 are becoming a cause where they look at our good works they are able to praise our father in heaven it's not an easy task L- let me so when he writes to the bond servants and he says all this right and he says they be well pleasing not argumentative not pilfering you don't get your bonus this year you think it's okay to you know take five or six pens from the office because you know <laughs> we rationalize but that's stealing we don't adorn the gospel 
And look at this, what Charles Wadsworth wrote. He says, oh, blessed bondsmen of Crete. He's writing to the bondsmen. They are slaves who have no uh, right to their own will. And he writes, oh, blessed bondsmen of Crete, going forth under the lash and the chain. So they, they could be chained, they could be lashed. Yet with hearts of faith under their burdens and smiles of love amid their tears. Even though they've been lashed, they have a heart of faith and they have smiles of love amid their tears. Doing work for God, impossible to an angel. You are not able to adorn the gospel on your own. That's what, Paul, that's what Charles Wordsworth is saying and what Paul has been saying all along. But we're called to... To adorn the gospel. So how does this apply to us? Oh, I had that, sorry. Your life, first of all, as a disciple, your life is to incarnate the gospel. In fact, it was Constable who wrote, he said, there's nothing, no other passage more powerful which makes the incarnate Jesus more visible. That is, this Jesus that we talk about, who was God who came down, who humbled himself, is most evidenced in the way you conduct yourself in front of your bosses. Well, wow, that's powerful. Or older men, younger men, younger women, older, you know, the older and the younger, everybody put together, how they conduct themselves makes a difference. So your life would be an incarnate and your work would adorn the gospel. And the word adorn is the word cosmio. And you've got to tell me, where, that word, where did you hear that word before? The word cosmetic comes from that. Cosmio, cosmetic. It means to honor the word. It means to say that our lives must live up to the advertising. If... Paul had Google in his time, he would have said, I'm interested in the Google review of your life. Right? I, I, what, what people have to say about the way you live is important. So that in every way we make, let me read to you chapter 2 verse 10 in NIV. So that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. And then we have the third, your role is to be a discipler of Jesus. The one who passes on gospel life. You see, you become a disciple, now you become a template for someone else. This is how I did it. This is how I discipled. You're moving away from this person who was living like the first Adam, doing his own will, doing what was right in his own eyes. He, as it, as it were, had eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which means I'm going to decide what is true. I'm going to do what is right. And you're moving this person away to be like the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who says, not my will, but your will be done. That's the discipleship program that we have. And so I know I didn't touch on the practical aspects of how you would dis how this would work out within your church. Hopefully, I don't know where Sheetal, I try to hide the uh, time cards 
uh, so that she wouldn't stop me, but I don't know where she is. Well, I've got 10 minutes, okay. So let me read to you the letter written to the editor of the New York Times. This is a true letter uh, to the editor that was written. Uh, you can ask me for the link if you want, uh, so that you know I'm not making this up. But this is... Uh, in response, he writes, in Pope's latest teaching, an argument for hope, not atheism in the face of struggle. Uh, news article, December 1st. And this guy writes, I'm puzzled by Pope Benedict's 16th re recent statement that a world without God is a world without hope. Now, I don't agree with everything Pope Benedict uh, said, but this is true. But then he goes on. Tens of millions of atheists around the world lead lives filled with hope. We hope for the many. Uh, we hope for many of the same things that Christian hope for: peace in our time, a better life for our children, justice for all, uh, end to poverty, and for a chance to enjoy our lives here and now. The main difference between us and the religious believers is that we accept that these things can be only achieved through our own efforts. Steve Bowman, San Francisco, December 1st, 2007. Things can be done only through our own efforts, is what an atheist would write. We are saying things can be done, cannot be done with our own efforts. And so why does God call us into a church? So that we can, first of all, participate. Participation is not discipleship. Participation is only the means to discipleship. So when you organize this event, and as you worked in teams, you, would, you have experienced how you became close to each other. And in becoming close to each other, there were barriers that were broken. It was no more a transactional conversation. It was no more, hi, bye, how's the weather, when are you coming, when are you going. You've actually gone down to a deeper thing. The barriers have gone down to a more heartfelt, intimate conversation. And so participation becomes a means of discipleship. So when you come in and go and not participate, you're not allowing yourself to go past those barriers. And when you have reached past those barriers, now I can say, brother, tell me how you're doing spiritually. This today, this morning that we heard, on a Sunday morning that we heard, how is this being lived out? How can I come alongside and pray with you? Is there somebody, young men, go leech, not leech, sorry, uh, reach. <laughs> I'm not getting my words today, but I... Uh, but go reach out to these older men and don't let them go. Don't let them, tell them that uh, brother, uncle, whatever you call him, I, I, I want you to tell me, how did you do this? How did you raise your children? How did you, how did you work in this environment? Tell me, I want to know. I want to know because I don't want to, I don't want to have to reinvent the wheel. I don't want to mess up this life. I want to be a good template for my child. Google does not have the answer. I know sometimes we sing that song, Google is the answer for the world today. It is not. It's within the church. So brothers and sisters, I don't know if we have time, but I'm going to put those questions out. We can ponder on that. First of all, to examine your own heart, are you wearing the gospel well? And if you're not, if you're not adorning the gospel, if you're not 
uh, if you're not causing this gospel to be attractive through your life and through your work, then what are those areas that you're willing to give up and say, I want to adorn the gospel? And then the second one, how will you incorporate this Titus 2 into the discipleship culture in your life, in your family, and in your church? Husbands, do your children know that there is somebody speaking into your life who is holding you accountable? Accountability is a good thing. So go find somebody. Go find your, your Paul. Be the Timothy. Go find your Paul. And Paul's, go find your Timothy. And you might need a Barnabas. But this work must continue. And only through the local church. So help us God. Let us pray. Father God, we, we are confronted with the truth of what your word must do in our lives. And we know, Lord, that, that we can do a lot and we think we can do a lot in our own strength, but it will never make for an eternal difference. We have to follow the patterns that you've given us. And so help us, Lord, to have this Titus II culture in our church, in our churches across the world. We pray that what you have laid out would be the truth that we are willing to follow. And I pray that you would lead us from strength to strength and from glory to glory till one day we are conformed to the image of your Son. And for that we long, we long, we love the appearing of your Son. And so we thank you for the, all the heads that are bowed. We thank you, Lord, for the means of the work of grace that's happening in their lives. In Jesus Christ, Lord's name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.